Welcome to Talks at Advent, homilies and reflections given at the Church of the Advent, a Western Rite Orthodox mission in Atlanta, Georgia. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit, God is one. Amen. With the extinguishing of the Paschal candle just now, it feels like the end of something today. Today is the Feast of the Ascension. And for a lot of Christians, I think, uh, if they are even aware that the church recognizes this as a feast day, uh, for those who do attend and celebrate, it feels like it might be a little bit of uh, an ending, especially in the epistle and in the gospel, when we read as a conclusion that Jesus was hidden from their eyes. It's like Jesus has left the building and that's the end of the show. And uh, now it's just kind of where this is a feast of deprivation. We lose seeing Jesus. But that's not how the disciples interpreted what happened on the day of ascension when they see Jesus ascend into heaven and is covered with the clouds of heaven. And the angels say, why are you still standing here? Um, the same Jesus who you just saw go is going to come again. And they go back into Jerusalem as Jesus instructed them. How? How do they go? Disappointed? Deflated? Uh, unsure? No, they go with joy. The disciples go back to Jerusalem rejoicing because of what they know this means. What happened in the ascension? That's what we need to understand as Christians in order to understand why the disciples went back to Jerusalem rejoicing. So, what did happen with the Ascension? I'm going to give three things that I think are important for us to recognize in the Feast of the Ascension, in the event of Christ's Ascension. And the first is this, and it's, I think, probably the least known and least understood unless um, your favorite book in the New Testament happens to be the book of Hebrews, which lays it out really clearly. So the first aspect of the ascension is that this is the final priestly action of Christ. So there's a little bit of a mirroring, I think we know, in the liturgical year between Christmas and Easter, right? Those are the two big sort of feasts uh, that we celebrate. We have um, we have entire seasons with feast days that come after Christmas and Easter, things that are referenced back to each. And so at Christmas, the farthest uh, referent back to Christmas Day is 40 days later, which is Christ entering into the temple. Why did Christ have to be brought as a little 40-day-old baby all the way to the temple in Jerusalem? Well, here's the reason. Once upon a time, back when the Israelites were just coming out of Egypt, there was an understanding that the firstborn of every family um, was dedicated to God as sort of uh, a priest, someone who would spend their life in service to God. This um, went with the, the old notion, the, the primary notion of priesthood as sort of the job of the head of the family. So Abraham is the one offering sacrifices. Um, and that, that continued on. Isaac and Jacob, the heads of the families, the heads of the tribes, these were sort of the priests, the ones who offered sacrifice to God. 
until something happened. When Israel came out of Egypt, they were uh, in the desert and they started misbehaving. And essentially, they lost their ability to offer sacrifices to God that way. God established among them a priesthood that would be over the whole nation. But this old um, notion that the firstborn belonged to God was still there. So what God did was said, okay, when you have your firstborn, 40 days after they're born, bring them to the tabernacle and then to the temple, offer a sacrifice, and that will redeem them, set them free from this service of obligation. And so 40 days after Jesus was born, according to the law, Mary and Joseph brought him up to the temple to have him redeemed according to the law. Now, what's funny about this is this is the first time Jesus, who we understand to be the true high priest, enters into the temple where the worship of God was taking place. But instead of being sort of redeemed out of that service, this was his first priestly act. Now, given that there are these mirroring aspects of Christmas and Easter, 40 days after Christmas, Jesus goes into the temple, right? 40 days after Christmas as a little baby. What happens 40 days after Easter? It's the ascension. Jesus goes into the temple. The temple not made by hands, but the eternal temple, the temple of God's presence, his very throne room. And he does this as his final priestly act. So what he did for us on the cross was summed up every sacrifice that had ever been done in Israel. Every, every sacrifice of thanksgiving, for sin, for atonement, everything that they needed to do, they did with uh, the first fruits of their fields, with drink offerings, and with animals that they had to kill and slaughter, and the lifeblood of those animals uh, became efficacious to do certain things. But it never lasted, and it was never meant to last. So the author of Hebrews tells us that when Jesus goes into the temple, into the very presence of God, he takes what blood with him? Not the blood of cows, goats. He takes his own blood, his own flesh and blood, resurrected into the presence of God. And there he completes that sacrifice that he made on the cross. He takes the sacrifice, just like on the Day of Atonement when the priest would kill the goat outside, then bring the blood in to the Holy of Holies and sprinkle it. Jesus died outside the city on a cross and then brought his blood into the Holy of Holies in order to accomplish what we could never accomplish, that is presenting before God a holy life. His lifeblood speaks for us there. So this was his final priestly action. That's the first aspect of the ascension. The second aspect is the coronation of Christ as king of all creation. In Daniel chapter 7, beginning in verse 13, in a vision he says, And behold, one like the Son of Man came with the clouds of heaven and came to the Ancient of Days, and they brought him near before him. And there was given to him dominion and glory and a kingdom that all people, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away, and his kingdom that which shall not be destroyed. What Daniel saw in his exile 
way back in a foreign land, long time ago, in this vision, was today. It was Christ's ascension, one like a son of man that is a human being, going up into the heavens, covered with the clouds, brought before the Ancient of Days, and given him a kingdom and a throne. When Jesus ascends into heaven, this is his coronation ceremony. It's him claiming his kingdom. Why is he claiming it just now? Because he earned it. Now, this is a weird concept for us. We, we think, well, of course God is king. We sing about it in the Psalms and Christ is God, so of course he's king. But Christ today isn't crowned king as God. He's crowned king as the God-man because he is the Davidic king now taking up his role as king of all creation. He earned this kingship. How did he do this? Well, by right of conquest, for one, when he entered death and slew it, he took over the devil's kingdom, his little territory, reigning over death, right? He won it fair and square. He just beat the devil. The devil no longer has any power over us. Sin is conquered. Death, we don't have to fear anymore. All that we used to fear about this world, all that we used to, we knew that God created everything and that he had to be everywhere, but it seemed like there's this realm where he just wasn't. No more. Christ conquered it. So he did that. He did everything required of him as Israel's Davidic king. And this Davidic king, by the way, uh, is meant to be the, the king of the whole world. There are prophecies all through the Old Testament. Uh, this is affirmed in the New Testament, especially in Revelation. The king of Israel becomes the king of the whole world. So when Jesus became the king of Israel by doing everything that the Messiah was prophesied and expected to do, he earned that kingship and thus became king of the whole world. And then finally, he took Adam's initial intended role as king over all of the earth by doing what Adam failed to do, and that was living a life perfectly obedient to the Father. So Jesus, as the man king, the Adamic king, the Davidic king, has done everything he needed to do in order to earn his kingship, and he goes to claim it on the Ascension Day. And he does this so that, as uh, Paul says in Colossians 3.11, he may be all in all. And as he says in Ephesians 1.23, so that Christ may fill all things. Christ, as the king of creation, inherits it all. It all belongs to him now. And this happens at the Ascension. And so finally, the last aspect of the ascension is what it means for us. Both of those things mean something for us. Jesus' final priestly action and his, uh, his accepting of his crown uh, as the king of all creation. But it means something for us sort of ontologically as well. And what it means is that our human nature for the first time is now raised to glory beyond every height of heaven to the very presence and the right hand of God the Father. All right, this isn't just a return to Eden. This isn't just God fixing what uh, seemed to have gone wrong in the garden. 
This isn't putting us back where we were locked out of once. This is taking us so much further. Christ opened paradise to the thief on the cross. Paradise was open then. When Christ harrowed uh, Hades and broke the chains of death and knocked down the doors of the devil, well, paradise was now open. But what hadn't happened yet? Our humanity had not been brought into the very presence, the intimate presence of the Father. So this is something that happens not at Easter, but at the Ascension. And this means so much for us because the path has now been trodden to eternal progress in communion with God. We in the church call it deification or theosis, the ability to grow closer and closer and closer and closer to God for eternity. It means that we get to share his divine life with us, not just bask in it, but let it enter into us, transform us, turn us into new kinds of creatures. God became man so that man could become God. He took on our nature so that we could begin taking on his nature. Now we are always going to be finite. That's never gonna change. But we now have the capacity to be filled farther and farther and farther up to almost whatever our finite capacity would be. Uh, I was never really great at uh, theoretical math and, and algebra trig and all that stuff, but I do remember the concept of, um, what, do you, what do you call the, the graph work? Uh, Asymptotic. Uh, asymptotic. Okay. Asymptotic. Yes. Where a line approaches yeah. forever and ever. It never reaches it, right. but it keeps getting closer. Right? That's what we do with God. We will never attain to God's eternity, but we get to approach it forever. That possibility was open to us on the day of ascension. So those three things I want us to meditate on for the next nine days until the Holy Spirit descends on us and uh, teaches us all, all truth and, and begins this next chapter which is another just incredibly exciting day, but we can't, we can't go there yet. Today, we're still, we're still looking uh, at Christ until the angel tells us to get back to Jerusalem. But those three things, today Christ finishes his priestly action, he is crowned the king of all creation, and he brings our human nature into the presence of God. When I say that the Feast of Ascension is a big day, I'm not, I'm not joking, like this, this is a big day. This is a huge, huge moment in the economy of our salvation. Thanks be to God for everything that he's done for us. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Ghost, amen. Talks at Advent, homilies and reflections given at the Church of the Advent, a Western Rite Orthodox mission in Atlanta, Georgia.